Party, the 27 de May, 1917. The Home and Journal Quotidian Administration. Monsieur the President, I am probably the first who dare to say I awaited your coming on our side. My only reason being the conviction that the day when the American people grasped the profound causes of this war and its universal consequences, it would not be content to be a looker-on during the greatest and most decisive events in human annals. I had lived too long in the United States to doubt the American concept of international rights and duties as laid down in the immortal Declaration of Independence. Perhaps it would have been possible in advance the hour of your intervention. It is no longer time to discuss the problem since fate has decided. If I refer to it, it is simply to justify an impatience which is easily comprehensible, as well as certain somewhat some as well as certain somewhat sharp criticism. One supreme argument, however, exists. The slower we have been in realizing our joint action, the greater the need of hastening the final decision on the battlefield, which will give us lasting peace. There are sufficient indications to prove that the American people and government are the first to realize this. But where to begin? This was the first question which reached us from the other side of the Atlantic. Each one of us replies as best he can. Your duty, Mr. President, is to order everything in compliance with methodical action. It is not for me to offer an opinion. There is no one here but is convinced you will do the best. Our trust is without limits. If I have the temerity of addressing you, it is because it may be permitted me to throw light on certain aspects of ourselves, which perhaps are not sufficiently clear to you. Allow me to say, in all candor, that at the present moment there is in France one name which sums up the beauty of American intervention. It is the name Roosevelt, your predecessor, even your rival, but with whom there can now be no other there can be now be now other rivalry than heartening success. I saw Roosevelt only once in my life. It was just after I left office and he returned from his lion hunt. He is an idealist, imbued with simple vital idealism. Hence his influence on the crowd, his prestige, to use the right expression. It is possible that your own mind, enclosed in its austere legal frontiers, which has been the source of so many noble sections, has failed to be impressed by the vital hold which personalities like Roosevelt have on popular imagination. But you are too much of a philosopher to ignore that the influence on the people of great leaders of men of men are exceeded their personal merits, thanks to the legendary halo surrounding them. The name Roosevelt has this legendary force in our country at this time, and in my opinion, it would be a great error to neglect the force which everything counsels us to make use of as quickly as possible. Roosevelt was one of the greatest craftsmen in the great laborious work which will constitute your glory. It cannot displease you that your two names are coupled in our minds. He, moreover, followed your idea. He wished to raise four volunteer divisions of infantry to be incorporated in our armies. The Senate and Congress did not withhold consent. If the law has charged you, Mr. President, with all the practical issues of the undertaking, it is no less true that Roosevelt represents a vast potential factor which a statesman is unable to overlook. Roosevelt cannot come alone, for his prestige on our battlefields demands that he come with prestige conferred on him by his countrymen. I claim for Roosevelt only what he claims for himself, the right to appear on the battlefield surrounded by his comrades. We have just heard of the arrival of the first American unit on our front. All our hearts beat. With what joy our soldiers greeted the starry banner. 
Yet you must know, Mr. President, more than one of our polis asked his comrade, polis, asked his comrade, but where is Roosevelt? I don't see him. It is to convey this remark to you, not knowing whether my message will reach you, that I have written this letter. You will forgive me for this rule in democracies that each at his hour tries to make himself heard. No other impulse impels me but the idea of what occupies your mind. Eminent Americans have consulted our military leaders on the problem of our common campaign. It is not for me to dispute technical questions. My ambition is more modest. I have not consulted our soldiers, but it was not necessary, for I have seen seen them work and know them well. The cause of humanity, which is also your cause, will owe to them something approaching a miracle, since it is in your power to give them before the supreme decision the promise of reward. Believe me, send them Roosevelt. I tell you, because I know it, it will gladden their hearts. George Clemenceau. George's Clemenceau. In 1916, President Woodrow Wilson won re-election on the slogan, He Kept Us Out of the War. To one of Wilson's chief adversaries, former President Theodore Roosevelt, this was a blemish, not a virtue. For years, Roosevelt had urged Wilson to enter the war on the European continent, or if not, at least prepare for the possibility. Wilson refused and dragged his feet until finally, in March of 1917, he was forced to change his mind. When Wilson asked Congress to declare war, the vindicated Roosevelt could have pressed his political advantage. Instead, he took a conciliatory tone, promising to keep his concern quiet so long as Wilson granted him one request, let him lead a group of volunteers into battle. Roosevelt's idea, shocking as it sounds, had some advantages. First, it would give Wilson more time and latitude to jumpstart a new selective service system, the first attempt at conscription since the controversial and ineffectual Civil War draft. Roosevelt planned to draw his volunteers only from the population of men who were not draft eligible and promised that at a moment's notice he could recruit tens of thousands of supporters in frontline service. Second, Roosevelt had military experience and a track record of battlefield success. In his youth, he had studied military history at Harvard and served in the New York National Guard. Later, he served as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, then resigned his post to join the Army's new Rough Riders Cavalry Regiment in 1898. Since Cuba, Roosevelt led the Rough Riders to victory at the Battle of San Juan Hill. Beyond that, sending Roosevelt would be a grand gesture by Wilson toward unity, with the extra benefit of sending his political rival across the Atlantic. Yet for Wilson, sending Roosevelt overseas was still a losing proposition. Roosevelt had long dreamed of a third presidential term. In his most recent attempt, he had finished runner-up to Wilson in the election of 1912, running under the Bull Moose banner and garnering 11 times more electoral votes than the sitting president, William Howard Taft. Battlefield success would give Roosevelt just the boost he needed to reclaim the White House. If Roosevelt failed, Wilson would shoulder the blame for trusting an elderly, pudgy ex-commander-in-chief to do his building. And then, there was the possibility that Roosevelt would be captured, maimed, or killed. In the gruesome war currently raging, this was more than a remote possibility. Roosevelt's capture would give the enemy enormous leverage. His death would be a blow to morale on the front lines and at home. Thus, Wilson declined Roosevelt's request, and when Roosevelt kept asking, Wilson declined again. In this week's letter, once in future French Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau pleads publicly with President Wilson to let Roosevelt fight. Clemenceau was familiar with American politics, having spent five years living in the United States as a journalist in the aftermath of the American Civil War. He understood why Wilson was reluctant to set Roosevelt loose, 
but he also empathized with Roosevelt. He, too, had been sidelined by a government with more dovish inclinations than his own. Like Roosevelt, he had been forced to rely on newspaper columns to make his case. He also recognized the effect Roosevelt's presence could have on breaking the present stalemate and lifting the morale of his nation's war-weary citizens. So despite the long odds, Clemenceau begged Wilson to quote-unquote send Roosevelt. Clemenceau's pleas were in vain. Roosevelt remained in the United States, tormented as he watched his four sons, as he wrote to a friend, face dreadful danger, while I sit at home in easing comfort and safety. Three of his sons were injured in battle, and one was killed. Denied a rifle, the best-selling author contributed to the war effort in the only way he could, with his pen. In late 1917, he published The Flows of Our Own Household, a book that made the case to the American people for why they were fighting and why they should dismiss the arguments of anti-war agitators. The bitter Roosevelt couldn't help also using the book to take some shots at Wilson for his initial anti-war stance, labeling him greedy, selfish, ease-loving, timid, and short-sighted. Unlike Roosevelt, Clemenceau eventually escaped the political wilderness, becoming prime minister again in November of 1917. On his return to office, Clemenceau oriented Allied strategy toward total victory, refusing any lesser peace and even jailing a former prime minister who dared to consider surrender. Living Roosevelt's dream, he visited the trenches frequently, leading from the front to persuade his countrymen that victory was assured. The change in tack and the boost from the entry of the United States worked, and on November 11, 1918, an armistice was signed, and the hard work began of negotiating a final agreement to end hostilities. In December of 1918, Woodrow Wilson arrived in France for the Paris Peace Conference, becoming the first sitting American president to visit Europe. He and Clemenceau got along at first, but their differing versions of visions of the final treaty quickly led them to clash, to the point where British Prime Minister David Lloyd George referred to them as Jesus Christ and Napoleon. Wilson saw an amicable and lasting peace, using his 14 points as a framework for a deal. Clemenceau demanded vengeance, reparations, and concrete steps to ensure that Germany could never again wage war on France. Wilson referred to the mercurial Clemenceau as irritable and pig-headed in private. Clemenceau, in turn, scoffed at Wilson's 14 points, quipping, God Almighty only has 10. Talks proceeded slowly, delayed even further by the assassination attempt that left Clemenceau bedridden for some time, but eventually a deal was struck. On June 28, 1919, representatives from 32 countries gathered to formally sign the Treaty of Versailles at the famous Palace's Hall of Mirrors. Wilson and Clemenceau shared one trade in common. Both demanded to negotiate alone, leaving other leaders from their government in the dark. For both, the decision proved politically costly. In the United States, the Treaty of Versailles was the first peace treaty ever rejected by the Senate. Wilson suffered a stroke while attempting to build public support for the treaty's passage and never fully recovered. In France, the treaty was ratified, but Clemenceau received significant public criticism from the officials he'd cut out in the negotiating process. They condemned him as a tyrant and a fool, and his treaty as too conciliatory to Germany. Ferdinand Folk, the French officer who served as Supreme Allied Commander during the war, was particularly scathing in his criticism. Clemenceau, public trust, and his leadership eroded, resigned as Prime Minister, left her less than a year after the signing at Versailles, the end of a decades-long political career.